Yes. Welcome to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy, a production of FlagAndBanner.com. Through storytelling and conversational interviews, this weekly biography show and podcast offers listeners an insider's view into the commonalities of successful people and the ups and downs of risk-taking. Connect with Carrie through her candid, funny, informative, and always encouraging weekly blog. And now it's time for Carrie McCoy to get all up in your business. Thank you, Sun Gray. My guest today, Dr. David Montague, is a professor at the University of Arkansas at Little Rock. Though his Ph.D. is in political science, it is the subject of his master's degree that intrigues me. Dr. Montague has a master's from the George Washington University in crime and commerce. Along with being a professor of criminal justice on the UALR campus, he is also helping students as the associate vice chancellor of academic affairs. Dr. Montague's education may have been narrow in focus, but his career has been broad, requiring him to live and work in many states. To name a few interesting jobs, he worked 14 years in law enforcement as intelligence and investigator for the United States Drug Enforcement, DEA. This is not busting kids for pot. It is a national criminal investigations on prescription drugs and chemicals, along with asset forfeiture taking stuff purchased with drug money from criminals. He has also worked in the fraud department of Chevy Chase Bank. And my favorite, again for the United States government, he served as senior investigator on the JFK Assassination Records Review Board. Y'all, today we're going to find out who shot JFK. (laughs) (laughs) It is my pleasure to welcome to the table the curious, educated, service-minded professor and author, Dr. David Montague. Hey, doctor. Hello. Good good afternoon. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me and for that wonderful introduction. You are welcome. After reading about your education, I couldn't help but wonder if you know Dr. Chris Jones, who just recently ran for governor, because he went to Morehouse, I think. He, I do know Chris Jones. Ah. And yes, and he, he did go to Morehouse. So he went to MIT as well. Uh, I do know him pretty well. He's a fabulous uh, uh, guy, family man. Educated. uh, Educated, uh, really community-oriented. In fact, uh, my child, now college student, actually worked uh, during the pandemic at the Arkansas Innovation Hub when he was head of of that as a volunteer. uh, And I just really loved it there. So I have a lot of admiration for uh, Dr. Christian. felt like y'all would know each other and run kind of in the same circles because you're both really smart and you've mm-hmm. had higher education. So a political science degree, I understand, and that's kind of typical. I mean, a lot of people have political science degrees, but a master's in crime and commerce is very different and interesting. How did you even know about this degree to even pursue it? Wow, that's a great question. You know, I've done a lot of interviews, and I don't think anyone's ever asked me specifically that one about that that program. And it's interesting because that program at, at the George Washington University. Yeah, you got to put the D uh, in right, there. Right, and I'm from originally from the Washington D.C. area. I have, I say, roots here in Arkansas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I used to come and visit growing up all my life. Um, you know, I was looking for something for a, a graduate level uh, criminal justice program, and it turned out I was studying white collar. I mean, I was working at DEA at the headquarters building as a contractor at the time before I jumped the fence to join the feds. I have been uh, going to Quantico for classes, and Quantico is the FBI Academy for your listeners. Uh, and so was looking for a uh, criminal justice-focused graduate program, a master's program, and looked around, you know, lived in the Washington, D.C. area, and found this really unique uh, program that focused on white-collar crime that happened to be in a forensic science department. And I said, well, that's kind of unusual. So, you know, the courses were also different from, I think, you know, a normal master's, you know, in criminal justice, uh, mostly conspiracy, terrorism, fraud and government contracting, you know, computer forensics, those things of that nature. Yeah. Uh, and most of the people that were my classmates were also investigators in other agencies. So NASA, you know, Army, you know. You just uh, don't Force. think of all the areas of crime. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it's interesting that program or that department 
uh, had three tracks in forensic science. One was straight forensics. So you had a lot of chemistry people, toxicology, serology, and epidemiology type folks. Then they had security management. So you had a lot of people that did nowadays you call, you know, the computer security, cybersecurity people. Um, and then the other one was crime and commerce. And that was people like me, and that was the white-collar side. So, you know, you dipped a little bit into all the other, the other two areas, but, but the focus of mine were a conspiracy, terrorism, fraud, things. Like, and I ended up using a lot of those things when I went to the assassination board later. Oh, I can't wait to talk about the assassination, <laughs> <JFK> assassination <laughs> but we're going to keep everybody waiting on that. <laughs> then you go to Howard University for political science, so you go back and get more degrees. Why did you go after you got your master's in crime and commerce? Why did you go get a Ph.D.? In political science. So uh, I finished the master's degree. Uh, I had gone to, uh, when I went through basic training at Quantico, I was assigned to Newark, New Jersey with DEA. And I worked in the Newark field office doing white collar drug cases, you know, pharmacies, doctors, nurses. So, you know, a lot of focus that we did now, you know, people think of Oxycontin right. and that, you know, the oxycodone crisis. Um, a lot of that back then, people thought of it just soccer moms and people that got hooked going to pain mm-hmm. doctors, you know, things like that. Uh, but, you know, it, thank goodness for the state and local uh, law enforcement folks. They were really the ones that really uh, put that type of criminality uh, out there at the forefront. And now it's really been adopted more. But thankfully, the state and local folks did. But, you know, to your, to your question, I, I really had um, enjoyed what I was doing at George Washington. Could not At that time, we didn't have... High quality distance learning in most places. Yeah. We're, we're talking about the you know uh, er, early to mid '90s, uh, and so I ended up getting transferred or assigned to Newark, New Jersey. Uh, took some classes at Rutgers University, or we call it Rutgers, mm-hmm. uh, up there in Newark. Um, and I liked the program, but it wasn't the same focus. Um, and then came back to Washington D.C. to be able to finish that program at George Washington University, and did. And it just so happened that while I was trying to finish that program, that's how I got on board with the Assassination Records Review Board. It started the process when I was still in DEA, but the clearance, the security clearance, was mm-hmm. so high, mm-hmm. they had to redo my top secret again. Plus, they had to do an SCI to attach to it. Um, and that just took a long time. So I was already back in the Washington, D.C. area. Thankfully, I was able to get back into George Washington. I uh, got picked up by the review board, and that's how I ended up finally, after meeting people at the assassination board, deciding I wanted to do a Ph.D. Because a lot of them had Ph.D.s. You know, the person that ran our Secret Service team had a Ph.D. Oh, the peer CIA pressure. Team. Peer pressure. You just couldn't be outdone. <laughs> I, was, I loved But I loved working with them. And I said to myself, you know what? This wasn't on my radar you know, just being a college graduate was going to be a big deal. Then I was had this desire to get a master's. And then finally something said, well, David, just for yourself, why not try it? And that's the reason I finally, I, I actually went on a, a journey to kind of pray about it, to be honest with yeah. you. Uh, and drove in my Jeep Wrangler uh, down to Alabama and Florida for a week and a half and came back and, and applied and got in to Howard University. And then I, when I finally got uh, accepted, I resigned and ended up becoming a consultant doing national security work while I was at Howard. A calling. It was a calling. It was. It really was. I just I interviewed a nun, and she said, when, when whoever your religious person is you look up to, when you pray about it and it keeps calling and calling and calling, you cannot <laughs> deny it. You can't deny it. <laughs> so uh, did you take top secret uh, files home with you? No. <laughs> no. Hmm, how timely. No, no. <laughs> Were your parents in law enforcement? Uh, no. Uh, in, in fact, you know, I grew up, my, my father left when I was about nine weeks old, and so my mother and my grandmother raised me. Uh, my, mother, my grandmother sold her um, hair uh, business here in Arkansas. I moved up to help my mother raise me in the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, and uh, my mother was not in law enforcement. She was uh, an, an engineer. Um, she's known as Arkansas's hidden figure. Um, she's the one that's credited with designing the first U.S. naval ship with a computer. Um, oh, and you wrote a book. And Montague. you wrote a book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. it. And, and that's, a, that's your mother? That's my mother, yeah. And so, Ray Montague? Yes. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And, 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 and so, you know. Um, so she's I, smart like you. You got your I, smarts from her. I got smarts from her. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Do you and, know your dad? I knew him, yeah. Is he smart? He died the day before I went to Quantico for basic training. Oh, what what basic training? For for DEA. Oh, okay. Yeah, for DEA. Yeah. Um, 
so we've already talked about what you did straight out of school. Uh, you worked a long time in law enforcement on a federal level. Right. So tell us about that time. Interesting drug investigations? It was. I think I think working for DA, you know, I was you know, young young person, the money was was I thought pretty good. You know, I, I Do enjoyed Do you sit it. at a desk? Uh, at p- part of the time, but you're out in the field a lot, too. I liked it because I had a lot of control over my schedule. That was important to me. I got a chance to really hone my skills and apply my attention to things uh, in a very detailed way, like macro level, you know, or micro level. Uh, I also liked it because uh, being an investigator is very is a lot about collaboration, and I mm-hmm. like working with other people. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a people person. You can probably tell I'm not very shy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those types of things bode well for someone who does investigation. What was the most exciting bust you ever did? Well, off the top of my head, I think uh, an interesting case was a psychiatrist that had a um, practice at a hospital in New York, and he had another practice in his home. He lived in a brownstone. Uh, I think it was in uh, in Queens. Uh, and then um, he had an another practice in New Jersey, in Newark, where he would come two days a week. And at that time, there were not that many states that have what were called prescription monitoring programs. And that's where if you go to the doctor and they write you a prescription, take it to the pharmacy, and then the pharmacy would then send a copy of it just for record keeping for types of drugs that are being prescribed, not about the individuals, uh, to the state. Uh, And so New Jersey did not have one of those programs. New York did. So he intentionally went to New Jersey to have a practice. And each day he would go to New Jersey. He was in a, um, a retail storefront. Uh, he would see between 150 to 200 people in a few hours, multiple people in an exam room at a time. He did not have any uh, nurses. He only had armed security guards, and he had two waiting rooms. One was cash and one was Medicaid. He was selling prescriptions for cash. Oh, he was selling prescriptions for cash. cash. Yeah, and I wanted to say it was, I mean, they were between $30 or $50 a prescription. What's the most disappointing outcome of your career that you worked on and worked on and it never came through? I really understood and, and, and believe that somebody that has, you know, it, it, you know, a significant amount of education and experience and they know better. You know, they know better than to take advantage of those who have the addiction. That's not I we used to say it's not the same as Joe the crackhead in an alley. You know, mm-hmm. this is a person that's, you know, maybe doing this work to, you know, earn extra vacation or whatever they're doing. And they've already got a this in case of the example I mentioned, he already had a, a good practice at a hospital. He had a, a a practice at home as well, you know, and it's just a third side business just to get extra cash, you know. So for me I found it very disappointing that the um, the guidelines set up for you know people convicted of those crimes seem to be very minimal. Oh, you know, and oh yeah, white collar crimes. Yeah, mm. and I and I, that really always disappointed have me. Have they changed it? I mean, some things have changed, but you know, I've been out of the business for a little while. I, I was I was very disappointed. I would say in terms of the assassination board, I worked two years with that agency, ninety five to ninety seven. Uh, and I went in there with the sole intention of doing my best to try to identify records, uh, try to negotiate, transfer, uh, try to help give people a voice to speak on how they felt and why they didn't feel comfortable initially mm-hmm. talking about the assassination and being able to turn centralize those things at the National Archives and Records Administration and our NARA or the archives. And I, I don't feel that enough was done to really make sure that all of those things were done very quickly. All right. This is a great place to take a break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Dr. David Montague, Professor of Criminal Justice and Associate Vice Chancellor of Academic Affairs on the University of Arkansas campus at Little Rock. Still to come, the long-awaited answer to the question, who shot JFK, which we just (laughs) talked about a little bit. Dr. Montague's opinion on drug crime in America, imported and prescription, and about some of the books he's authored. For instance, the award-winning book about his mother, Ray Montague, the woman who revolutionized naval engineering. We'll be back after the break. You're listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy, a production of FlagAndBanner.com. Over 40 years ago, with only $400, Carrie founded Arkansas Flag and Banner. 
During the last four decades, the business has grown and changed, along with Carrie's experience and leadership knowledge. In 2020, Carrie McCoy Enterprises acquired OurCornerMarket.com, an online company specializing in American-made plaques, signage, and memorials for over 20 years, and more recently opened a satellite office in Miami, Florida. Telling American-made stories, selling American-made flags. TheFlagandBanner.com. Back to you, Carrie. You're listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy, and I'm speaking today with author, educator, Dr. David Montague, professor of criminal justice, associate vice chancellor of academic affairs on the University of Arkansas at Little Rock. And we're about to tell some American-made stories. <laughs> Dr. Montague, your resume says you served as a senior investigator on the JFK Assassination Records Review Board. Tell us all about that you've been talking a little bit about that what did you find out nothing sounds like nothing because nobody would talk (laughs) i actually quite the opposite people people love to to, to talk about (laughs) were they saying anything good yes so ruby did shoot oswald did oswald shoot jfk if you mark my personal belief, I don't know how, because, you know, the, the official findings of the Warren Commission in the Warren Report was that uh, Oswald acted alone as the lone gunman. During no the 70s, uh, there was um, material introduced uh, from uh, audio uh, evidence from one of the Dallas police motorcycles. The audio evidence uh, indicated that there might be an additional gunman. So my takeaway from my time there Uh, I just don't know how Oswald could have done something like that by himself. There were many people that said that they thought they heard uh, additional uh, shots. And so um, part of the reason that there was another investigation beyond the Warren report was that a lot of people, uh, once the Warren report was released, said that they... They, they gave evidence to people. They had photos. They gave statements. They were in Dealey Plaza. That's in Dallas, Texas, Dealey Plaza. Uh, and that those uh, reports or records did not appear in the official Warren report. A lot of that that we, we documented in our official findings that are available publicly uh, in the official report that was submitted uh, by the Assassination Board uh, to President Clinton, who was president at the time, I spoke with a lot of people that said that they had turned over statements and records and, you didn't and have photos them. and that they were not ever put in the official record. One of the things I think was interesting about the, the work that we did was, you know, we had to look at multiple, you know, avenues and multiple angles of this thing. Um, so, you know, such as multiple Oswald theory, you know, the belief that there were multiple people that were living that life as Oswald or Oswald-like, if you will, uh, to be able to maintain af- official records in different places, be able to uh, work in certain patterns or operate in certain patterns. There's still so much controversy about uh, his defection to the Soviet Union and how did he get back in the country, what was going on uh, with him while he was in uh, the Soviet Union. Oswald to, left the United States and went to the Soviet Union, and then that's where he met his, became his wife, Marina Oswald. They had a baby, and they came back to the United States, and, and that seemed kind of unusual at the time to be able to get your family to be able to come back around the same period of time. What connections might you have? What I'm saying is there were so many different wow, angles connected mm-hmm. to the, the enigma that I call Lee Harvey Oswald uh, in his life in, and some question whether he was really just a patsy and not really a gunman at all. The movie JFK had just come out the year before, you know, well, Oliver Stone movie, mm-hmm. you know, and so many people were incensed. So he said, I know where I was when the president was assassinated, and I don't feel that the people have done enough to release the records, and I don't want the government telling me what I need to believe about this. And mm-hmm. so our mandate was quite simple, was to have full, uh, unquestioned authority uh, to be able to identify what we determined to be an assassination-related record, to be able to go after those records, and to have full negotiation authority to uh, convert those into records at the National Archives. So, so they're public now. The, everything that we found is over at the National Archives. There are still some things that have not been released. The the access is very limited. You know, for us working at the agency, we just had scan cards and walk right through the doors. Uh, like, for instance, when I arranged uh, us being able to go examine the Zapruder film, 
You know, uh, I didn't think it was a big deal. I, we all had full access. The Zapruder film is the one that became so controversial. Uh, Abraham Zapruder up on the pergola, up on the step of the pergola, and being able to get help from his assistant actually to be able to to film. You know, I believe it was eight millimeter, uh, and then you see the the limousine go in front of what's called this it was on the other side when you read it it said stemmons freeway that's the film where you can't tell which right. way his head goes right when, so yeah. if you believe it came from the six the the book depository and then it came this way but if you believe it was another consp- uh, conspiracy then it might have been gumming from believe? here which i don't do think oswald could have done it by himself and i have interviewed people like james take who was at the triple underpass further down past the strip stemmons freeway sign he said he was hit by debris and he kept that debris. I interviewed him in 1995. I think there was more than one uh, shooter. So uh, we're pretty sure then that he was not acting alone. But everybody yeah. always thinks that Bobby and him were killed by the mafia. Well, there are. That's what, another angle that was put out there. Um, what you do you know? think about that angle? I think it's really interesting, you know, looking, you know, my understanding of the um, uh, of, of the federal government during that time was that uh, there was not a public acknowledgement that organized crime was actually a real, you know, and, and qu- quite frankly, I think that was kind of a joke because everybody knew it was real, you know. Um, uh, we did look at some people. It's in our official report. We did look at some people who were uh, known to be connected with organized uh, crime, and I did have to travel to some places and look at some uh, records. Uh, we do know of certain people that connecting, you know, with uh, Castro, you know, anti-Castro Cubans, oh, yeah. uh, Rolando mm-hmm. Mosferrer, and uh, so the you car think bombings. Bobby's, yeah. uh, Bobby being shot and John being shot are the same two groups that shot him? There's, there are several theories uh, regarding uh, the assassination of, of Bobby Kennedy. We did look some, through some of those records. I do not know. Which, which ones of those have been released, so I can't speak to those. Uh, I do know that we did look through some of the Martin Luther King records. And I will say, I think for the, for the record, that being a Morehouse College graduate, that's the same college that Martin Luther King graduated. Uh, so that really became surreal for me to look at records um, in their true form and be able to see. And, and the same thing with the president. I mean, just imagine being a 28-year-old sitting in a in a room at the at the national archives and they bring out you know the the the, the first lady's pink outfit and oh. the president's oh. suit and cool. they bring out you know a commission exhibit 399 that's known as the magic bullet for your listeners and so and the rifle the manlicker carcano rifle and then you know going through and looking wow. at these autopsy photos and x-rays i'm like 28 that's like my first week on the job and i'm like whoa it's, this is the president of the united states brain i mean the brain of record you know so i i don't know if that was the actual I bet brain. that was surreal yeah that is surreal gray you were gonna say something i was just gonna say that's also nuts but uh, for the listeners mom's about to jump out of her seat <laughs> wanting to know who killed jfk <laughs> so my takeaway is that your job during this whole process was really just to like find the pieces of the puzzle it was not really to solve the puzzle necessarily right and and just for your listeners we had a you know our in terms of our structure you know, I, I ran the investigations team after Ann Buttermer, who was my colleague, left, um, and uh, we had other teams. Uh, we had a CIA team, had an FBI team, mm-hmm. you know, forensics, you know, military, uh, Secret Service, you know, and um, and we would all work together. We get something would come to our attention, or something we wanted to try to clear up a controversy that was out there in what we call assassination lore and be able to try to find records of those things. And we were fully authorized to do so. But mm-hmm. it is also important for the listeners to understand that we did have to keep safety concerns in mind. There have been hundreds of people that have mysterious things happen in their connection with the assassination. Really? Oh, yeah. And, um, like what? I mean, there are a lot of people that were called to testify in the 70s. Uh, um, they, they jumped out of windows. They, well, they had heart attacks or car accidents. Were very, there's, a, there's a really good book. I believe the guy's name is Craig Johnson. It's, it's dated. It's an older book now. But he actually did a little pie chart that actually showed the type of death. Um, but we uh, went out so, to Los Angeles, and uh, we sent him some, a letter to interview him, and he was found four days later dead in his apartment in Los Angeles. And, God. So the point is that, you know, I think the mandate was very important. You so, killed that man. So with, with our, with, with, <laughs> before our structure, though, because you, you asked about the, you know, the 
what were some of the difficulties? I mean, think of the complexity it took from an investigative standpoint. If I'm going out in the field, and to, to your point, I'm, I'm not trying to solve it. I'm trying to go out and work with my colleagues on these other teams, be able to do – now you have Google – but a lot of what I was trained to do was in terms of intelligence that. gathering, yeah. right, was some people call it skip tracing. So if, you know, there happened to be uh, 400 Craig Johnsons, for Craig F. Johnsons, there could be 400 in the United States that are alive right now, you know, mm-hmm. and maybe 40 of them are in that region of the country. And I'd have to go, you know, deeper Narrow and deeper and deeper. And I was trained to do that. So I would identify the person from assassination lore, verify it's them. Usually I'd reach out, have a conversation, let them know it's not a joke. This is real. We're really a federal agency. We'll be there in four days and you're going to be dead. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> and, and, and then convince them to talk to us. You know, it would have to be Russia to be able to kill so many people and not get caught. You know, they're falling out of windows all the time over there. That's what I mean. Sorry, we won't go that way. We've got to take a break. We've got to get off this subject. We've got a lot more to cover. All right, we come back. We'll continue our conversation with Dr. David Montague, Professor of Criminal Justice and Associate Vice Chancellor of Academic Affairs at the University of Arkansas on the Little Rock campus. Still to come, I want to ask about fentanyl, why some pills kill you and why they don't. I want to understand the psyche of criminals and why we all love crime shows so much. And I want to ask you about the Idaho Four. You know what I'm talking about, those college kids. We'll be back in just a minute. At FlagAndBanner.com, we realize that winter takes a toll on your flagpole's hardware. So now's the time to replace the frayed ropes and broken parts you may be dealing with. And you can save 15% off your order by using the code HARD15 at checkout. Here's another way you can save money on FlagAndBanner.com purchases. Sign up for text alerts and get 15% off your next order. FlagandBanner.com. You're listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy, and I'm speaking today with author, educator, Dr. David Montague, professor of criminal justice and associate vice chancellor of academic affairs on the University of Arkansas campus at Little Rock. So before the break, we talked about who killed JFK, and if you missed it, you've got to go back and listen, although we didn't ever solve the problem because Dr. Montague is very closed mouth, but I think he knows. He just won't tell us because he works for the man. Sure. The man's not going to. That's why he gets that job with the all-access pass because he can be trusted. So let's talk about fentanyl, the pill. It was legally produced for pain. So I'm not that familiar with fentanyl, the pill. You know, back when I was doing cases, we had patches, you know. And, and so any, anytime you're talking about any controlled substance, um, you know, how it's used, it can be easily abused, just even with aspirin and analgesic. So take, I know take 13 of them, you have a problem, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah. You have a liver problem. Yeah. So are the pills coming in from Mexico? Do you have an opinion about where are all these pills coming from that the kids are getting? They're not manufactured in the States, are they? So I can't speak to what you're talking about, which is a counterfeit drugs. A counterfeit drugs. And, and so that has been an issue for quite some time. I, I used to belong to an organization called the National Association of Drug Diversion Investigators, NATI. I, for one, am one of those people that was responsible for being part of the regulated chain of drugs, is what it's called. And that's where... Um, you have an import-export, potentially, if, if, the, if the raw material could be raw pseudoephedrine, it comes in from maybe China or some other country, comes in, it's in a big barrel, and then it goes, it's imported to a company, an American company. Uh, it's gone through all the proper taxing stamps, all that kind of stuff. Everything's legitimate. Uh, and then you have to uh, turn that from a powder or for into actual pills or tablets, mm-hmm. there's a there's a manufacturing process associated with that, uh, and that can be you know uh, examined by investigators. And we used to look for what's called theoretical assays of how many pills should you yield from that raw from that original barrel. And that's one of the ways you can tell like are things okay or not. So you know that there's only a certain amount of pills or tablets that can be produced by X company in a given year, right? Oh, okay. So the markings are called that drug ballistics that are on the pills or tablets. You'll see little stamps, numbers, you know, indentations. Those things are there for a reason. They're there to let you know of the purity, the quality, that that's the actual thing that your doctor prescribed or the generic. And if you look on the pill bottle, you'll see a description. You can easily go online and, and, and look for information to know whether what you're taking is real. However, 
It is important for listeners to know that for a very, very long time, there have been a lot of people in other countries and in our country that are producing counterfeit drugs. Um, That's not a secret. And what I saw when I went to the Natty conference uh, years ago, uh, they had some teenagers that were on the stage, and they were all in drug rehab programs. And most of them just acknowledged that their assumption is if they buy it off the Internet, Uh that it must be real. Yeah, believe if it's on the internet, someone must have checked things, regulated things, and that's not true. I feel like that's the opposite of true. Like, it, you know, and, and it, never trust the internet. <laughs> well, I think I think that people become savvier now, but yeah, that's, that's true. That's true. That's and true. if you think about the impact of people that don't have health insurance, yeah, and are going out to try mm. to find a lower cost of the same drug, they don't yeah. know if it's counterfeit. But or that's not, not what's killing the kids. They're buying that fentanyl pills on the street, I guess. I don't know. I mean, if you think about a regular um, uh, illegal drug, uh-huh. you know, that's cut or mixed with something, yeah. like cocaine, like street, yeah. like, like, you know, cocaine, um, you don't know what it's been cut with. Uh-uh. You know, I remember we did um, a, a, an investigation once when I was in Newark, New Jersey, uh, and we had to go and audit a, a you know, manufacturer that, that produced, you know, uh, cocaine hydrochloride, you know, right. for, for surgical. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and you know, that was like 97 percent pure. Did you steal you know, some? On the no, street. Just you know, of course, if I had stuck my f- finger in it, it would have killed me if I had a cut on Are my finger. Are you serious? Well, yeah. You know, but I mean, wow. if you, uh, if you, when you're dealing with something that you buy on the street, you don't know what it's mixed yeah. with or what. And same thing with buying the prescription medication. You know, just yeah. because you buy a pill on the street doesn't mean... So do you think drug yeah. commerce is helping or hurting our economy? I think drug commerce is actually very helpful. You know, I, I, if my, David Montague's personal opinion, I do think the pricing of drugs, you know, needs to, needs to be looked at. You know, I think that, you know, you want companies to be able to make money. Um, and you think of the... At the same time, you think of the number of folks that just... If, if they aren't fortunate enough to have access to health care, to be able to get their hands on medication that they need. And I have been in pharmacies where the person in front of me will just say, no, I, I can't afford to get that one. I, I'll have to, because it's $300 for them or mm-hmm. $500. So you them. do so much social work for so many things. Are you going to start getting on that board, try to fix all of the drug problems? <laughs> You're so smart. I think you could fix it all. <laughs> well, thank you for the compliment. I, I was fortunate enough to be asked to testify twice for two different drug uh, bills uh, that were that were being considered to create a prescription monitoring program here in Arkansas. And actually, that prescription monitoring programs that was the topic of my doctoral dissertation. So you've written uh, numerous publications. One as a co-author of the Travesty of Justice, the Politics of Crack Cocaine, and the Dilemma of the Congressional Black Caucus. What is the dilemma of the Congressional Black Caucus? Well, it, it speaks to the, the 1980s, and um, there was a lot of time. You know, at that time, you know, crack was a huge thing, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. huge. Uh, and um, Len Bias, who was a, um, a, a college basketball player uh, with uh, College Park, University of Maryland College Park, he had just gotten uh, signed on to join the um, Boston Celtics, and he went out and he overdosed mm. and died. But he died of powder cocaine. Mm. What uh, happened in Congress, because there had been numerous attempts to get increased uh, emphasis on drug penalties, um, on, on the floor of, in there in Congress, they basically said, we need to do something because Lynn Bias has died and we need to do something about the scourge of crack cocaine. But he didn't die of a crack cocaine overdose. Oh. So what came out, because there were... Uh, at that time, attempts to try to say, okay, should the difference between how you federally criminalize powder cocaine to crack cocaine, you know, should you make it for every packet of crack cocaine, should you have to have one powder cocaine or should you federally to get the same sentence, or should you have five? Some people were thought, and these are people in Congress just throwing out amounts without any real science behind right, it. Right. And the result came out that the federal disparity of 100 to 1. So you would need a hundred times as much powder cocaine uh, to get the same sentence as one packet of crack cocaine. If you think of it like packets oh, like that, that is which odd. didn't make any sense at well, all. Well, that's because those rich people were using cocaine, so they didn't want the to do that. Well, and, and, and to add uh, insult to injury, the head of the sentence, U.S. Sentencing Commission at the time even testified 
uh, and said, this doesn't make any sense. You're going to be putting people so in prison So how long did that law stay? stay? Oh, it changed when Obama was president. Okay. Wow, know. that's a long time. Yeah. He so, changed yeah, it to 18 were, to 1. If you were poor and used crack, you went to jail for a long time. But if you were rich and used cocaine, you Powder cocaine, yeah. yeah. Okay, that, yeah. That's, I got it. All right, this is my favorite book I want to talk about. Overnight Code, The Life of Your... This is your mother. The Life <laughs> of Ray Montague, the woman who revolutionized naval engineering. And this book was featured on Good Morning America and received the 2022 Georgia Author of the Year Award for a biography. This book is good. It's got national recognition. Tell us about it. My mother really, um, you know, had been raised in the, as she called it, the child of the Deep South. She had my grandmother, who was from Pine Bluff, uh, Noble Lake area, uh, you know, told my mother growing up that she had three strikes against her. You know, she was um, African-American. She was uh, a girl. Uh, and from the segregated South. And so, uh, and, and there were a lot of stereotypes about what a Southern education and just coming from the South meant to people who were outside the South, you know. And so uh, that she should recognize that and understand that that doesn't have to limit her and that she would need to prepare herself. So my mother grew up around a lot of strong uh, women. Uh, and, and she, you know, she was on Good Morning America after being recognized as Arkansas's hidden figure. Who was? Your mother? Yeah, in, two, in 2017. And so we all went up there, and, and, and Janelle Monet from the movie Hidden Figures was there. And, Yo. You know, Michael Strahan and Robert Rock. Oh, yeah. And of course, my mom was trying to flirt with Michael Strahan and all that <laughs> Good kind girl. of stuff. Good yeah, it's girl. like you're a tall. And, and my, my, my wife and now my, my now college student was uh, with us. And, and they actually, um, uh, Good Morning Mary sent a limo down here to Arkansas because my mother couldn't fly at the time and drove us up there. No way. But the reason I bring it up is because after that Good Morning America debut, um, we got a call from a literary agent in New York. And so she called and said, has your mom ever, I saw you on TV, has your mom ever thought about a book about her, you know, about her? And so I put my mom on the phone and said, hey, you know, are you interested? And my mother had been asked many times by people, you should do a book. But in my mother's mind, it was about her career. You know, she she not only developed the first na- naval ship with a computer, she went on to be get the first woman to be program manager of ships, which is like a CEO of a company. At one point, she was in charge of all computers, you know, for the Navy. She was the first woman on the Numerical Control Society Board of Directors. That's like the technology that builds your headset, your phone, your computer, stuff like that. She was, she's like a grandmother of the computer age, if you think of it that way. When she went into hospice, one of the things I promised her was that I would finish the book. So we She's did. gone. She passed in 2018. And we have all of her papers in a collection through ULR at the Center for Arkansas History and Culture here in, our, in Little Rock. Oh, I got And some students that. have been able oh, to go into. That's so do, cool. I know. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's the whole purpose. You know, I remember one of the things that she said was she, her goal in agreeing to do the book was that she knew her health was declining. Mm-hmm. And she just loved going out and doing public speaking. And it, really? it gave her, she, it, it hurt her because it was harder and harder every single time to recover. She physically was drained. She wanted to pay forward her, her, her life knowledge. Force. Yeah. She wanted to pay forward what she'd learned. That's why this radio show exists. That's mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Boom. Boom. Yeah. All right, let's take our last break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with the interesting and very curious Dr. David Montague, Professor of Criminal Justice and Associate Vice Chancellor of Academic Affairs on the University of Arkansas campus at Little Rock, and Ray Montague's son because she's very important, Mm -hmm. the woman who revolutionized naval engineering. We'll be back. We want to take just a second to thank everybody who helped make Dancing into Dreamland such a huge success this year. Great crowd, great performers, great judges. As a matter of fact, listen to this quote from new Dancing into Dreamland judge, actress Joey Lauren Adams. A man actually proposed to his fiancée on the dance floor after finishing up their routine. And she said, thank you for letting us all share in your dream tonight. And it was our dream to put on another Dancing into Dreamland. We'll be back again next year. Thank you. You're listening to Up in Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy. I'm speaking today with author, educator, Dr. David Montague, professor of criminal justice and associate vice chancellor of academic affairs at the University of Arkansas in Little Rock, Arkansas. So before this last break, at the beginning, we talked about who shot JFK because 
Dr. Montague served on that review board. And then we talked about his mother, who is was the first woman to um, revolutionize naval engineering. And I have noticed that I thought was interesting is that most of the computer people that I hire that go to school for computers, they're good, don't get me wrong, but the ones that are self-taught, they have a passion for it, and they're really, really good. But now we're going to talk about... Um, you know what he's doing now for seniors crime against seniors what are you working on aren't you responsible for um founding the university of arkansas little rock senior justice center to promote service and research on crime against older people is that a real problem or is it just cyber well i I would say it runs the gamut just like other types of of criminality um when you talk about uh, gerocriminology is another way gerocriminology with a g gerocriminology and there are there are scholars that are looking at that and what it means. Um, a, a lot there are some people that think it might just deal with like Medicare fraud or Medicaid. And That's Medicare, what I would think. Yeah. You know, but a lot of it has to do with you know physical assault has to do with uh, taking of pills. Sometimes it may be even be family members you know that are mm-hmm. you know taking the pills from you know grandma's medicine cabinet. Uh, people yeah. that are um, uh, fraud in in terms of uh, Medicare fraud in terms of the um, uh, companies uh, that will go in and, and try to get you to give them their information. And for instance, we did a project out in uh, the Delta there, and we met some seniors and said, oh, just last week, this company, such and such company, came out and said, if we give them our names and bank account numbers, they'll, they'll give us free orthopedic shoes every month for a year. And they brought pizza and Coca-Cola. And, mm-hmm. you, know, like, and, oh. and you know, there's some people that grew up trusting you know they leave the doors unlocked at home they do the car doors unlocked still especially in these small towns you know yeah you know and 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 just making you know so a lot of what we did when we created the senior justice center was to literally go out and talk to senior groups Uh, talk about yeah like life quest of arkansas is a great one out in west little rock at second presbyterian church Mm -hmm. i used to serve on their board Mm -hmm. out there and you know they have these you know classes and we would go out and Talk and bring students too, and talk mm-hmm. about you know what are some things you could do at home. You know what? Don't open the door to say hello. You talk yeah. through the door. Things. But here's the other part that I think is important. We would also go out um, and train people who were uh, medical uh, professionals and and other types of professionals that worked with seniors to make sure they understood the signs. And we would talk to people who had. And I dealt with this when my mother was in assisted living. Yeah. You know, I lived through. This. Making sure that, like little tips, like making sure you show up at all times of the the night at the facility, so that you know oh. don't ever have a set pattern. You know, so that they so you can yeah. see what they're doing see in what the middle doing. of the night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you had a daughter that was out there running around, she's social. She's college age. What would you tell her? Well, obviously, the being careful on on social media and 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 define helping to try to define what that means, and that changes mm-hmm. too. You know. Uh, understanding the importance of where uh, data online go and that in many ways they never disappear and that depending on what you're doing online uh, that that can show up in your job search and what you're posting out there and and putting information about like tagging yourself that you know if you're going to go on a trip somewhere don't put all these photos out there while you're on the trip. Yeah, you're telling leave, people you're right? not at home. You know, right. Basic hey, I'm leaving like town. Come rob my house. Yeah, you know. So, but but again, I think that's a great question because um, when you're talking to you know younger people or any group that's different from your own particular demographic, mm-hmm. you know, it's important often to try to get other people that understand that do have experience, more experience with them, to be able to help share or or, or say that same message to them. So if I go to a school, like I speak at a lot of like high schools, if you're giving a message, if you're providing materials, you know, if other people are still conveying that same message, because somebody might look at someone just comes in, bunch of degrees and think that I just think I'm some kind of Mm know-it-all. But if they're also hearing other people share their stories and after I'm gone, they're given material and say, here's what Dr. Montague was talking about, or here's an assignment. And I see that happening even at the grade school level because we've done a lot of virtual talks with students about all types of things. And I just tell you, I cannot say enough about the ingenuity, especially with the pandemic, the ingenuity of the teachers, K through 12 and higher ed. Online learning. To try to learn how to reach their students, not only about the 
academic part, but about the socialization part as well. And I just think that's something that's really not mentioned enough, but I think it's very, as an educator, I think that's something very real. Oh, thank you for giving a shout out to teachers. God love all of them. Uh, what are your thoughts about the Idaho 4? What, that guy was a criminal science major. So now that you're a teacher that teaches criminal science, so do you look at some of your employees, some of your kids and go, you're a criminal and you're crazy and you need to get out of here and don't start, graduate Start him. profiling. Are you profiling your students? I would no. be. Well, I, I, I think that, you know, examples of that, I mean, unfortunately, you know, for everyone that's watching this or listening, knows that the number of of violent incidents in general but especially shootings mass shootings is just ridiculous Ridiculous. it's it's just ridiculous um and it's on the rise i think what it means is this is stabbing though yeah they were stabbed what does that mean mr criminologist well i i think i think when it well i think uh uh what I think was is important about that is that I think what it means is we all need to try to understand to be aware, situationally aware. And that goes back to your other question before about what would I tell my child? Mm-hmm. You know, being situationally aware is something that most people don't want to think about. If you think about I'm in the safety of by, of the mall or I'm in the safety of, you know, this church group or I'm in the safety of, of my school or some people don't want to feel like they need to even think about their surroundings and things of that nature doesn't mean you have to be paranoid they were safety in their house yeah yeah but i mean there 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 needs to be i think like for instance if i were a a student in living somewhere i you know with others um we'd have to have some discussion about what are we doing as a group in terms of locking the doors making sure we're doing and i'm not faulting anybody for anything right but i'm saying those discussions and how to deal with those scenarios just like in in k through 12 they're doing these drills um, drills Mm -hmm. on how to deal with these scenarios so whether it's a gun whether it's a knife whether you know a a knife knife is a very up close and personal thing that's what i'm asking you you, dr criminology what was the deal with the knife and only four out of the six people were killed what's your thoughts on that i know you thought something well i i don't want to put my personal thoughts out about that i I want to see what the what the evidence brings and they're being so close-mouthed about the evidence too Yeah, you think he did it? I I think that in, whenever there's an an ongoing investigation and looking through records and material, it's very important to really give those involved the 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 agency they need to be able to do a thorough job of that. Uh, and I certainly would not want to potentially taint what they're doing. All right, last question, and then we're like, then we're going. I know I've drugged this out a long time. All right. Uh, <laughs> Humans are so fascinated with crime shows. I mean, how many crime shows are on TV? If my husband watches one more crime show where they stab people and kill people, I'm just going to kill myself. I mean, I just can't watch it. So, I mean, speaking of time, if I can say it, speaking of TV shows, I remember when I was with the assassination board, the the hot show at the time was The X-Files. And people asked me, and I would always say... My life is like the X Files every day. Uh-huh. <laughs> that was going to be my question. Are any of them like that? Are they really like? Is the X Files right? I mean, I, I would just say I, I dealt with some very and my me and my colleagues and I dealt with some very strange circumstances during the time, at least my time during the assassination board. I I can definitely say that that was one of the most interesting positions I've ever experiences I've ever had in my life. What and do you I'm watch now? Fortunate. Uh, I watch some reality shows. I watch game shows. No, no. T- you know? no, crime crime, shows. no crime shows. No crime shows. shows. Oh, I've watched Law & Order. i watched Law & Order. Everybody really? watches Law yeah. & Order. That's funny. I, I like watch Law & Order. Just like everybody else. Yeah. Okay. Uh, is it I'm real? not that special. Is it? Yeah, you are. Is it? Is it kind of true, Law & Order? Is it kind of true a little bit? The complexity yeah. of the... Oh, my gosh. Yes, there's so much complexity out there. I mean, one thing that's not true is the belief that, um, you know, I forgot which show it used to be, uh, maybe it was CSI, one of those, where it just seemed to the viewer that they automatically get DNA evidence yeah. immediately yes. in this fancy computer. Nobody's rolling around in the fancy you know, Hummer and things. Well, maybe there are a few out there, but they're very few um, in terms of doing that kind of work. Um, and there actually been some news articles. To call, I think one was called the CSI Effect. And that's talking about the problem because some juries, people sitting on juries, not knowing the realities of a real civil or criminal investigation, you know, just assume that what they see on TV is actually real. 
you know, that, that it's so easy. And if you don't have all these meticulous records with, with so much information and how, why did it take so long? So is DNA you know? not dependable? Oh, I think DNA is dependable. I think some of the question that, that some people, what I'm getting at is that some people would, might believe, unfortunately, that it's just a very straightforward process to be able you to You get just, one piece of evidence and then yeah. everything ties up in a nice little bow at the end. And there's enough resources to just automatically test every single thing right mm. away. Oh, you resources. Know? And so, you know, and, and as a result, if, if that doesn't happen right away, if it took an extra few days or weeks, you know, do they somehow question the validity uh, of what was done? You know, and I think that's unfortunate because... You know, any, when you're talking about doing any type of work, you know, even right now, pandemic, you can't find people to work. Yeah. Jobs, you know, yeah. it's hard. Right. You know, just the same thing for every type of organization, including law enforcement. So if you're on a jury, just give them a break and give them some time to collect all the information. So that's yeah. what we need to do yeah. with the uh, Idaho Forge. Just give them some time to collect information. Sure. Well, I am, I am curious. I'm very curious. I'm, anyway, she has I have even more unanswered questions. More. And flags. And, and flag. these are for you. <gasps> This is your, this, thank you, Dr. Montague, for coming on. Really? These are your flags. So I tried to figure out every place you've ever lived, and you've lived a lot. So there's Arkansas. There's Maryland. Yeah. There's D.C. Yeah. And, DC, and this it. is uh, New Jersey. Yes. Have you, oh. Did I get them all? Yes, you did. Oh, my God. Thank you so much. Wow. Okay, this means a lot. Oh, my goodness. And you're, that's going to look great on your desk at the at the college. Oh, well, you know what? It's so funny that you know, I'm in the office of the provost. I'm the executive vice chancellor and provost mm-hmm. for the University. Arkansas Little Rock and I have so much memorabilia of like law enforcement stuff people come in my office and say oh it's like a museum in here you know <laughs> and I'm going to proudly display this because it has per- I came to visit Flag and Banner as a child oh, oh yeah, yeah tell everybody mm-hmm. our story and I remember being so impressed I was with I believe I was with my great uncle Jones um, and you know I don't have any actual aunts or uncles because my mother was an only and my father was an only you know yeah. so and and I would come to Arkansas, and I remember we used to go to Hogman's Hog Pen, mm-hmm. and we used to go to Flag and Banner, and and I, I forgot exactly what you know what we were looking for specifically, but I remember being with my mother Aww. that day, and so when I saw the uh, invite and, uh, invite for this, I was just blown away. I said, "Oh my God, that's where I went as a child," and to get this as a as a memento. You have no idea how much this means to me. Thank you very much. Thank you for telling me that yes. story. You need to come, you need to come back now. We've, we, we've done a lot of good work renovating a lot of the, that building and restoring a lot of that historic ballroom on top. Okay. You need to come see it. We'll give you a tour. I yes. would love that. You got my email, my cell phone. Call me. Thank you, David. Thank you. I loved it. <laughs> In closing to our listeners. Thank you for spending time with us. We hope you've heard or learned something that's very inspiring or enlightening and that it, whatever it is, will help you up your life, your independence, or your business. I'm Carrie McCoy, and I'll see you next time on Up In Your Business. Until then, be brave and keep it up. You've been listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. For links to resources you heard discussed on today's show, go to flagandbanner.com, select radio show, and choose today's guest. If you'd like to sponsor this show or any show, email me, Gray, that's G-R-A-Y, at flagandbanner.com. All interviews are recorded and posted the following week. Stay informed of exciting, upcoming guests by subscribing to our YouTube channel or podcast wherever you like to listen. Carrie's goal is simple, to help you live the American dream.